that you are here today because we're beginning a new series on the book of Romans and we'll be in the book of Romans for the duration of the year. And I want to say as a preface that uh, this particular series in the book of Romans is unique and different from almost any other series we've been at for perhaps the past 15 years. And let me uh, tell you how and why I believe this particular series is different. First of all, the reason why this is different is that the book of Romans is unique and different. It is a profound book of the Bible. Uh, The great Christian thinker Augustine said that uh, the book of Romans helped him uh, with his doubts that were dispelled. Martin Luther, who ushered in the Protestant Reformation, called the book of Romans really the chief part of the New Testament and truly the purest gospel. He called the central premise of Romans justification by faith alone, the doctrine on which the church rises or falls. William Tyndale, the the person who translated the Bible into English when the Catholic Church uh, allowed only for the Bible to be in Latin, called uh, the book of Romans the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament. The reason why this particular series is different because we're dealing and we'll be studying this profound book, the book of Romans. So the second reason why I believe this series is unique and different is that the book of Romans contains the essence of the Christian faith. So if you are here today as a brand new Christian and saying, I just started coming to church, I just accepted Jesus, and I want to learn more about what Christianity is all about, I am so delighted because the book of Romans uh, teaches you, uh, and, 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 and I don't want to demean the other books of the Bible that talks about marriage and relationships and, and uh, things of that nature. Those are all necessary and good. But it is the book of Romans that gives us the essence of the Christian faith. The problem oftentimes is that the majority, for the majority of the people, their view of the Christian faith has been clouded by, um, colored by the Christians that they have met. And if, if their uh, encounters with Christians and the church has been negative, that's how they view the, the essence of the Christian faith. And if you are here today as a seeker and open-minded, wanting to learn, I am so delighted that you are here because uh, Romans is the book that you want to study. And in fact, if right afterwards you come and talk to me, hey, Pastor Steve, uh, I've got one minute, I need to go, I'll never be able to come visit this church again, Um, what is one book that you want me to study? One book of the Bible that, that, that you would have me read, and I would say, above all other books, Romans. Read it over and over and over again. I also believe that it is profound because no matter how long you have been a Christian, and in fact, you might be here today as a former seminary uh, graduate or a former pastor or someone like me, or have been a Christian for decades, and you've done studies in the book of Romans, and you've memorized portions of it, and you think you understand, I am here to say to you that the the contents of the book of Romans is so deep and profound that the longer, the more you look at it, the more you realize that you do not know. The fourth reason why I believe this particular series through the book of Romans will be different is that the book of Romans demands that we slow down. 
um, and look at it not as whole themes, but almost verse by verse. Let me give you an example. Last year, the book that we looked at from the pulpit was the book of Acts. Acts has 28 chapters, and it took us 24 sermons to go through. The way that our, our staff has laid it out for the book of Romans is that the book of Romans has 16 chapters, and we're planning to do it in about 33 messages, about two um, sermons per chapter. You see, because it's so dense, we don't want to just kind of skim over it or uh, preach themes from a chapter, but we want you to understand it verse by verse nearly. So here's our commitment from the pastoral staff. We will work hard at studying and knowing the book of Romans. We will read through and study some of the finest uh, academic work that is out there. In fact, for today's message, I probably read about 100 pages of different commentaries and uh, sermons and such. We'll prayerfully apply it to our own personal lives and then ask the Lord to help us to apply it to your lives so that it makes sense to you. And by the time we stand at the pulpit, whether it be here with myself or Pastor Bang, uh, Steve Bang Lee or Pastor Ben Tabal or Pastor Chris Chi or our, uh, Chris Lee uh, at the Catapult Chapel or here, uh, you can be rest assured that we would have done our best to try to study it and present it the best that we can. So as Kobe Bryant told Paul Gasol some years ago, when after a terrible loss, Kobe said, it's time to put on our big boy pants now. And so I would ask you to put on your big boy pants, not just here on a Sunday saying, you know, I hope I hear something helpful and relevant, but you come with an expectation to learn what God has to say to you. You know, and one of the ways that I am... Uh, trying to uh, psych myself in, into, into my big boy pants as I wore my tie today. It, it makes me feel like I'm, I'm being a little bit more serious. I, I, I don't know if you feel it, right? I don't know about the other men, though. I don't think any of them wore a uh, coat and tie. And so I would ask you to commit to this. I would ask you to, to do two things. First of all, I would ask you to commit to listening to every single sermon on the book of Romans throughout the year. Unless you're sick or out of town, I would ask you to be here. If you have to be away for your child's sports or something, come at 8 o'clock and listen. There's nothing uh, better than listening live so that you would have an understanding not only here and there, but the whole flow of the book of Romans. And if you happen to be sick or, or away, I would ask you to, to go onto our YouTube page and listen to that particular sermon. The second uh, thing that I would ask you to do um, is that you would commit to becoming saturated uh, with the truths of the book. Allow it not only uh, to be something that you hear on a Sunday, but allow it to be something that uh, infiltrates your head, your heart, and your hand. Uh, that when you, when you get to your cell groups that you open up the passage that, that you just uh, heard from and you discuss it with your cell group. If God deemed it to be so important, what does it mean for us? So I am so proud of all of you. As we think about this year 2019 and we've deemed it as the staff 
has deemed it uh, a church to call home. Uh, we want there to be a spirit of unity and a familyness uh, about what we do and who we are. And for this year, I would ask you, as a family, to look at the book of Romans and allow it to mature us. That you come with an expectation that you are moving from milk to solid food, as the scripture oftentimes says. That you move from here just wanting to be inspired and helped to wanting to know God and his word better. And so, having said all of that as a preface, would you turn your Bibles, if you have one, if you have an app, would you fire that app up to Romans chapter 1, we'll be in verses 1 through 7 for today. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. And if you have found your place in the Bible, would you rise with me if you are able? Now, because many of you have different versions and the one that is displayed on the screen, the screen is displaying the ESV version of the Bible, and I'm going to see if we can do this as a responsive reading. I'll read the odd, you read the even from the screen, okay? Odd, even, right? That's I'm odd, you're even. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And let's all read verse 7 together. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we come before you. We come before your holy scriptures. And may we uh, have our uh, minds engaged, our hearts open. Lord, uh, may we put aside our stubborn spirit, uh, the distractions of the world, and, and come with our knees bent uh, to the word that you have given to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, you may be seated. In an email, uh, there's no, normally three things that you uh, fill out in the top. Uh, uh, who you are, who the person you're writing to, and the subject you are writing about. To, uh, no, from to, and subject. And so in this particular uh, set of verses, verses 1 through 7, Paul does the same. He talks about who he is and the subject he's writing about and the person whom he is writing to. Now, what's a little bit unique about the book of Romans as compared to the other letters uh, of Paul in the New Testament is this. In almost all the other letters that Paul has written in the New Testament, he's writing to people whom he knows. There are churches that he has um, either helped plant or start, or churches that he uh, had spent some time with. And so there's a familiarity when he's writing to individuals, whether it be Titus or Timothy or Philemon. There are individuals that he has a relationship with. The book of Romans is different in, in that Paul has never been to Rome. He doesn't know them. 
And so as he writes to them, he has to establish credibility, a relationship, and he's writing not only to introduce himself, but he is um, pitching an idea, a partnership. And so it is important for him to introduce himself properly. When I have to, once in a while, uh, email someone that I do not know, and, and it is someone that that I need to establish some sort of a relationship with, I would oftentimes ask someone, hey, uh, can you introduce me to this person? And uh, they would write us uh, a common email, and one of the things that would happen, hi, my name is Steve Chang, I'm the, um, and depending on whom I am writing to and why, I, I would give my credentials a little bit. I'm the senior pastor, founding senior pastor at Living Hope Community Church, if that matters to that person. I am also on leadership at Sola Network, if that matters to that person. It's so good to meet you. I've heard a lot about you. Uh, the reason why I'm writing is I, I wanted to know if you would be interested in speaking for us in our 2020 conference. Um, and so that is what I would do if I'm trying to land a, a, like a, a national or international caliber speaker for a conference that, that we are involved in in two years from now. And so when Paul is writing to this particular church in Rome, the, the, basically the capital of the world, he writes them, and the, one of the first things that he does is talks about his own credentials, his identity. He talks about his identity in three ways. And although he could have talked about his relationship with uh, the, really the, the head of the church, whether it be James or Peter, he doesn't do that. He could have talked about his academic credentials, uh, the people whom he studied under, the school that he uh, really spent a lot of time with. He doesn't do that. But he talks about three things. The first thing that he talks about is that, if you look at verse four, uh, 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. The first thing that he says is, I am a servant of Christ Jesus. Actually, in the New Testament, there are two Greek words that kind of imply this idea of servant. One of the words is a word that you know well, it's diakonos. And diakonos was transliterated into English to form a brand new English word, and that English word is deacon. It has this idea of servant. And the church has made it kind of romantic, nice word. Uh, it, it is not simply someone that you, uh, who goes and serves tables, although it can mean that. But we've romanticized it in such a way that it's a, a socially acceptable word in the Christian culture. But there's another word that the New Testament oftentimes uses to talk about the servant idea, uh, a noun, and the word is doulos. And doulos literally means slave. A slave is someone who is owned by another individual, a master. A slave does not have personal rights. A slave does not get to choose whether he can obey or disobey. A slave is not an autonomous individual, but belonging to his or her master. That is doulos. And perhaps because we live in such a fiercely autonomous culture, uh, the American spirit, a very independent spirit, uh, absolutely hates the idea of being obligated under the authority, the forced authority of someone else. Uh, the American culture hates the idea that, we, that God calls us to be slaves of anyone. 
or perhaps it's because of the ugliness of slavery in America, what is fascinating, listen, is that modern translators of the Bible, when they run into these two words, diakonos or doulos, instead of translating as we would normally understand it, servant and slave, uh, they've uh, washed it, cleansed it a little bit. So even if the word is in the original Greek, doulos, they use the term servant oftentimes. In your English translation, depending on the translation you are using, Paul uh, uh, introduces himself as Paul, servant of Christ Jesus, and you think that if you un, uh, un, un, unpack it and look at the original New Testament language, the word that you would find is diakonos, but really the original uh, Greek word is doulos. So the first way that Paul describes himself is this, is his identity. I am a slave of Christ Jesus. I am not my own person. I belong to someone else. I don't get to choose where I go, what I do. I am under obligation by my master, Christ Jesus. The second thing that he says of himself is that I am called to be an apostle. I am called to be an apostle. I did not choose to be an apostle, but I was called to be an apostle. If the word slave is a a, a term that is lowly in stature, uh, the term apostle is one of honor. It is a term that describes an emissary, an ambassador, a spokesperson. Paul was one of the very few um, who was given the title of apostle, someone who has uh, been an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and has been sent by God uh, to speak of that resurrected witness. So Paul, when he introduces himself, says, I am first and foremost a slave. I am secondly Uh, an apostle, called to be an apostle. The third thing that he says of himself is that I have been set apart for the gospel, and I am set apart for the gospel. I have been dedicated. I can do many things. I am gifted. I am influential. He was, um, and it doesn't mean that he couldn't work, and in fact, he was a skilled laborer, but the primary thing that I am committed to is the gospel of God. The gospel of God is that, that's the, 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 the phrase that we get our uh, theme, uh, our series uh, title of, the gospel of God. The Greek word gospel is euangelion. Um, it means good news. Euangelion, you is like good, and angelion is like news. According to legends, about 490 BC, the Persian, the mighty Persian Empire, was uh, was threatening the Greek, uh, the uh, the Athenians, and because of the overwhelming number of uh, soldiers that the Persians were bringing, the Athenians feared a, a sure defeat, and they would come. The Persians would come and would kill the men, uh, rape the women, and enslave the children. For sure, they thought this would happen. And so the, the outnumbered soldiers of the Athenians went and somehow miraculously fought off the Persians. The legend goes that a particular soldier uh, by the name of uh, Phidippides, 
ran approximately 25 miles to Athens. And when he finally got to his destination, he was so exhausted from his run, he dropped on his knees and uttered one word, victory. And he died. This is where apparently we get marathons from. The concept is that the general on the field has to quickly get word back to his home city that it's safe. You don't have to run. That there's good news. And you, the emissary, the angeloi, you go and tell that good news, that that news to the people at home. You is good, angeloi is the emissary. The good news or the gospel is not good theory, it's not good advice, it's not good tactics, but rather good news of what has happened, what has already been done for you. And it is interesting, Paul could have introduced himself in many ways, but he says, I am a slave, I am an ambassador, and I am set apart, committed to this gospel. And then he spends time talking about that subject, the gospel. In most other letters, uh, Paul doesn't spend a lot of time talking about the subject. The subject is talked about in the the body of the letter. But here he spends a considerable amount of verses on talking about the gospel. He says three things about the gospel. He says, first of all, it was promised by the prophets. It was promised by the prophets. Uh, The gospel of God, at the end of verse 1, verse 2, which... He promised, which God promised beforehand through his prophet in the Holy Scripture. The good news of God was not a new invention. Uh, It is not a a novel idea. It's not a fad, but it's something that the ancient prophets uh, spoke of and wrote of in the Holy Scripture. As a scholar who has studied the Old Testament, Paul knows the Old Testament and he's convinced that all of these things that he is uh, speaking of, of Jesus Christ, was actually foretold beforehand by the prophets. In Genesis 3, when we learn about the fall, uh, we are also told that the, the offspring of the woman would somehow deal a fatal blow to the offspring of the serpent. serpent. In Genesis, in Exodus 12, when the Jews were in captivity, God sends out a series of plagues. The last plague is the the plague of death. And if you recall, the Jewish families were, were told that what they needed to do was take a lamb, slay the lamb, Take the blood of the lamb, sprinkle the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, and if you do that, uh, the death would pass over them. When God is speaking to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David wants to build a house for the Lord, and God gives uh, David a covenant. In verses 12 and 13, he says, When your days are fulfilled and when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. As if God, and, and God was saying to David that there will be a biological heir to you who will establish an eternal kingdom 
and that is uh, a bit confusing. How can a biological heir uh, establish a, a forever kingdom? But that was the promise that God gave to David. And then from prophets such as Daniel, Isaiah, Malachi, Zechariah, and, and so many others, they speak of the Son of Man, the Son of David, who will come, the Messiah, the Christos. In the first public ministry of Jesus in Luke chapter 4, uh, Jesus goes to the local synagogue. He opens up the scroll and he reads from the book of Isaiah. And he says, after folding it, uh, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. When he's speaking to the apostles, the disciples in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, he says of them, uh, he says to them, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In the road to Emmaus, after Jesus' resurrection, he's talking to two of of two people who were discussing what has happened, and he says to them, um, And he explains to them, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. The good news is not a brand new invention. It is a fulfillment of what the old prophets have talked about and written about ages ago, millennials ago, a future hope, and Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. Secondly, the gospel, the good news is pointing to a person. It is pointing to a person. Verse 3, concerning his son, God's son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God. The good news is not an idea of how people can live more fulfilled and happy lives. The good news is not uh, a secret to be unlocked so that we can be more righteous and become acceptable to God. The good news is not a religious philosophy that we can ascend to. The good news is what has already been done for us. But as John Calvin, and Calvin is someone that you may not be familiar with, but as far as... um, uh, theologians are concerned, uh, he's like the Michael Jordan of, of theologians. That, that's like demeaning to John Calvin, I think. But John Calvin says that the whole gospel is contained in Christ. The good news is a person. The gospel is not a what, but it is a who. The gospel is not a what, but it is a who, as if the, the, the battlefield is raging and there's sure defeat, but the Savior has come. And it doesn't really matter how the Savior accomplishes his purpose, but the message that you're sending is the Savior has come. We cannot say that we know and accept the gospel without uh, also knowing and accepting Jesus Christ, the person All the prophecies point to one person who was descended from David according to the flesh. And what is unique and interesting about this uh, Messiah is that he was the son of David. He was a biological heir. This is a title given to the future Messiah, and that's how the Jews understood this. But more than that, verse 4 says he was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, that Jesus was not only the perfect man, but he was the perfect God. Somehow, Godness 
and humanness dwell simultaneously uh, in perfection in one individual. Both are necessary and critical to the good news. And we go on to the third uh, uh, part of the good news. The good news is not only promised by the prophets, pointing to a person, but is proved by an event. It's proved by an event. Verse 4, and the Son of God uh, was declared... Uh, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of Holiness. Listen, by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. See, it had to be one who is perfect God and perfect man simultaneously. Because you see in Genesis 3 when it says, And the offspring of the woman shall strike a fatal blow on the on the offspring of the serpent, uh, uh, that Genesis 3 was, was saying that there has to be a human descendant, a second Adam in, in, in a way. When it talks about in Exodus 12 that when the Passover uh, would, uh, had to be remembered and there has to be a sprinkling of blood for the forgiveness of sin and there had to be a perfect unblemished lamb. There could only be one unblemished person whose blood can be perfect, a perfect sacrifice. That, that sacrifice had to be perfection. It has to be a God. When that prophecy was given, that covenant was given to David, it had to be a descendant, a biological descendant of David. You see, the Savior had to be both man and God. And what he did on the cross had to be done by a perfect man, a perfect God, dying on the cross and rising again, and which proves that he was the Son of God. And a lot of people can make all sorts of assertions, claims. How does one prove that he is the son of God? God incarnate, God in a man. How can someone declare that he is an embodiment of the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, divine God? Paul says he proved it by the resurrection. You know, the gospel message is, um, and in terms of how we apply that now, is found in verses 16 and 17. And that verse, in, in Romans chapter 1, verses seven, 16 and 17, justification by faith um, is really the essence of the Christian faith. And um, I don't want to you know, go too far ahead of myself, but that will be discussed two weeks from now by Pastor Steve Lee. And so if you are here today and you're not quite sure what the essence of how someone applies to Christian faith, I would ask you to be here in two weeks from now. If you have a non-Christian friend who has a misunderstanding uh, and they're just religious maybe, but they don't really understand, two weeks from now, that, that's a great time to be here. So I want you to be here two weeks from now to hear that. But next week is good too, okay? I don't, next week we have a guest speaker and, um, from the East Coast. And our catapult students, about 120 of them, are going to go on a retreat next Sunday. I don't want to see you catapult parents coming at 1 o'clock to pick up your kids, all right? I want you to be here 
And, and the speaker is going to be talking about parenting, gospel parenting. So if you're a parent or a future parent, uh, it's going to be great. This uh, pastor friend of mine, Owen Lee from the East Coast, he has uh, three teenage kids, and one of them is a standout athlete. And uh, I'm really fascinated to see how he handles the, the tension of, of all of that. So I want you to be here next week. Um, I had to say all that to say, okay, so just be here. Paul continues, verse 5. He says, through whom we have received, through Jesus, whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. And so he says, you know, my job, my apostleship, my calling is to now the, to those who have already accepted the good news, those who have already understood. So, so the message has come to you, victory. This work has been done for you. And my job, he says, is so that you would have obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who are called uh, to belong to Jesus Christ. If you belong to Jesus Christ, my job is to make sure that there's an obedience of faith. You can't have faith without obedience. If you say, I have faith, but my life I'm going to live just as I want to live, that's not real faith. But you can't have obedience without faith either. And they go hand in hand, arm in arm. And his goal is to, to keep speaking to uh, those who belong to Jesus Christ and saying, if you, if you really understand the good news, it should change your life radically. That you should see your life also as someone who's a slave. It doesn't belong to you, but it belongs to the Lord. And, but as he does so, he says, the reason why I'm so compelled by this is this. Now listen, look carefully. For the sake of his name among all the nations. For the sake of his name among all the nations. The missional spirit, the zeal in which Paul has, uh, is for the sake of Jesus' name. If really he believes that, that he's a wretched sinner saved only by that which Jesus had done, the good news, the gospel, there's only one choice, there's only one thing that he can do is be, be committed, completely committed to, to thanking Christ and to making his name honorable. One of the problems, one of the problems in which we do uh, a lot of what we do in the name of Christianity, whether it be playing an instrument up on the stage, preaching a, a sermon from here, uh, setting up coffee out there, uh, teaching children in, in the little rooms. One of the problems that we have is we're motivated by a, a desire to be obedient. Uh, we're motivated by our, our, our love and affection for the people whom we're serving and the such. John Stott, the great thinker, says this, it's kind of a long uh, statement. We should be jealous for the honor of his name, troubled when it remains unknown, hurt when it is ignored, indignant when it is blasphemed, and all the time anxious and determined that it shall be given the honor and glory which are due to it. The highest of all missionary motives is neither obedience to the Great Commission nor love for sinners who are alienated and perishing, but rather uh, zeal burning and passionate zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ. What should motivate us is not for the love of the people we're serving or simply uh, being obedient to a concept, 
but we, the reason why we should do everything is because we're grateful to what Jesus has done for us, and we want to honor his name. So he introduces himself as a slave, an ambassador, uh, someone set apart, and the subject is the gospel, uh, and, and how it uh, is applied, we'll talk about it a little bit later, but it is something that is, was promised before by the prophets. It's pointing to a person, and it's proved by the resurrection. Now he gets to the recipient. He, he talks about the people whom he's writing to, verse 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. And the very last sentence, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's like a standard templates uh, saying it's, it's like hey I hope you've been doing well but he, he writes to them and he identifies a, a group of people he's never, never met but he knows that they belong to Jesus Christ that are Christians and he says these things these two things are true of you I've never met you but I know these th- two things are true of you the first thing that's true of you is that you are loved by God you are loved by God if you belong to Jesus Christ you are loved by God I don't know how many of you are parents here. I say this periodically. Uh, and, I, and I'm sure there are anomalies uh, in the world. But you know, most parents love their kids. You know that, right? But most of you who are parents, you know you love your kids, right? You don't always like them, but you love them. You know what I mean? Um, sometimes your kids can annoy you. It's like, you know, can you go to the other room, please? Um, uh, they get you angrier, faster than any other human being alive, right? Uh, you're, you're sometimes not sure if they belong to you, but there's something about your kids that when they succeed, it brings about joy in your heart. And when, when they're hurting, it just rips your soul like no other human being around you. Just because you are their parent, God's put something in your soul that says you love this human being. And Paul's never met the Romans, but he tells them, if you belong to Jesus Christ, I want you to know that there may be times when you are rebellious toward your heavenly father and it will break his heart. And the reason why it breaks his heart is because he deeply loves you. And there are times when you, you're trying your best to walk by faith and be obedient, you know, that brings him joy. And the reason is because he's your heavenly father, heavenly mother, and he cares for you deeply. And so he wants them to know that they are beloved by God, and secondly, that they are called to be saints. The word saint in Greek has a root word, holy. And what he is saying is not that you, are, you belong to Christ. Um, the reason you belong to Christ is because you're holy, meaning that you become more holy than, the, uh, uh, than other people, and so you've met a minimum threshold. To, and then, so here below is unholy, and here is holy, and so because you've met this threshold, you become a, a saint, a Christian, acceptable. That's not what he's saying. And in fact, as we unpack Romans, we'll discover more and more, more and more how while we were yet sinners, while we were unholy, he calls them saints, he calls them the set-apart ones, 
not to imply because you are holy, you have been, um, you belong to Jesus Christ, but rather because you belong to Jesus Christ, you are called now to be holy. You ought to live different lives. You ought to live set apart lives. I am so excited that we are embarking on this journey together. And I'm, and I, 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 I'm honest when I say this, Living Hope, I'm so proud of you. That I know as a church family, you come week in, week in and week out. And oftentimes I know you sit there and you're just being polite. But at the same time, you bring with your open-mindedness and eagerness to learn the scripture. And throughout this year, I, I, you know, I, I want to challenge you and me um, you and the rest of the preachers who will come up to walk through uh, Romans together. And as I look forward to some of the other chapters in Rome and Romans, I, um, there's a fear and trepidation in our part. I don't want us to make mistakes when we open up the Word of God and teach you anything that's wrong. But at the same time, I know that this can profoundly change, impact, deepen how you look at yourself how you look at Christ, how you look at God, and how that impacts who you are in light of his eternity. So I'm grateful that we can be in a journey together this year. And if you are here today and you still are searching and seeking and you're not quite sure um, that you really understand the gospel that Jesus died on the cross for you, this perfect God-man, I would ask that you continue to ask questions. Like I said, in two weeks, there'll be a clear explanation. But even this week or today or next week, you be free to, feel free to, to ask one of us. Would you pray with me as we close this particular portion? Lord Jesus.